right, all that to turn to Hebrews chapter 6. So if you guys want to make your way to the 6th chapter of Hebrews, and as we celebrate the Thanksgiving weekend, what we are going to go through today is uh, arguably one of the most uh, difficult and controversial passages in all the New Testament. So thank you for that, Lord. Uh, If not, uh, most controversial in all the Bible. So exciting uh, that you're here today. We're going to navigate our way through this. But before we do that, I want to remind you that the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. So you've heard that repeated week after week. And the the audience that's being written to are a group of uh, Messianic Jews. These are people raised in an Orthodox Jewish household that then converted to Christianity. They believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And so as they put their faith, their trust, their hope in Jesus, what also would have happened is they would have began to be persecuted by their families. They probably wouldn't have gotten the invitation for the Thanksgiving meal because they had effectively turned their back on their culture, on their society. And so persecution began to happen to these Messianic Jews these Hebrew believers. Now, this persecution just didn't stop at their brethren, at their families, but because of the persecution, they would have no doubt uh, risen the attention of the Roman Empire. So in Rome, if you're a history buff, they had over these a couple of centuries what was known as uh, Pax Romana or Roman peace. The the Caesar wanted to see peace throughout all the Roman Empire. And the way that they would obtain peace is through the sword. (laughs) If you began to have an uprising of any kind, they would put that thing down immediately with great force so that no one would rise up again. So uh, peace was forced upon the people. So you can imagine as an insurrection began to happen or some level of persecution, it would have drawn the attention of the Roman Empire who would have come in immediately to squash it. And so for the uh, Orthodox Jews, they would have pointed their finger to these newfound Christians, these people of the way. They would have said, they're the ones that believe in a different king. They're not going to worship Caesar. We're going to fall in line like good boys and girls. But this crew, they believe in Jesus of Nazareth as their king. And so they would have been persecuted now by their own brethren and by the Roman government. It felt like pressure on all sides. So for the Hebrews, the question was, Uh, Should we just turn back? Maybe it would be easier if we just went back into the old ways, back into the tradition. I mean, the reality was we weren't persecuted when we were back in that spot. And so the question was, should we just go back to the laws and the traditions and all the things that we had worshipped prior to our knowledge of Christ? But here's the thing. What uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 is this. Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. See, for them to turn back, what they would be effectively doing is to turn back to the shadow. The substance was all of Christ. The fulfillment of the law was in him and his person. And so it would be for them to actually worship a shadow. Now, a few years ago, in 2019, I had the opportunity to go to Zambia. It was around a 30-hour trip to get over there and got the chance to teach a pastor's conference, the 35 Zambian pastors. It was a wonderful experience. I probably left there learning more than they got from me, but just a tremendous blessing. But all told, the trip there and back, I was gone from my family right around two weeks. Now, you can imagine if 
uh, returning from being gone away from my family for nearly two weeks, if I walk triumphantly back up the driveway and my kids came out to greet me and my beautiful wife and they all dogpiled on top of my shadow. Whoa, wait a minute. Like, what, what are you doing? I, I'm here. The, the substance is here. You were missing me, remember? Not my shadow. Oh, we're so thankful your shadow's returned. Like, that's preposterous, right? That's ridiculous. But that's the same thing that was being considered by these Jewish believers. Maybe it would be easier to just turn back and worship uh, the shadow. And so what the writer to the Hebrews says in Colossians, or excuse me, Colossians, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, he says to them, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of the milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food, verse 14, belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so what he transitioned to last week is that by now, these believers should be feeding on the word. They've continued to just feed on milk and milk taken on the meat of the word of God. And so as a result, they're confused. They can't tell good from evil any longer. The whole plan is confusing to them, up from down, left from right. And that leads him into chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, therefore, leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection, or that word is in some Bibles, maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And so what he does is he goes through this list of the elementary principles, these basic foundational elements of the faith that they needed to possess. He starts by mentioning uh, repentance from sin, not through works, but through faith. We're saved by grace through faith, right? It's, it's not of any works that we can possibly do in order to obtain salvation. This is what he wants to mention as a foundational element, a principle. He then goes on to mention faith towards God, that faith is necessary. What the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 2, is that faith is needed mixed together with the gospel in order to produce something in a Christian's life, that it's not good enough to just have the gospel and have no faith to mix together. That if we're going to put feet to our faith, if the faith is going to, if the gospel is going to come to profit, we have to have faith in God. And so that's, again, an elementary principle. Uh, Thirdly, he mentions uh, baptisms, the doctrine of baptisms, and it is plural. It is plural because we experience both the baptism in a physical sense, the water baptism, that as we go from a uh, non-believer to a believer, bearing the old man, raising up the new man, we show this exercise. We, we have an outward sign of an inward change that we communicate to the world at large to show that we're a follower. We're a believer in Jesus. So this water baptism that takes place. But then the second baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now that one tends to weird people out a little bit. Wait a minute. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? Well, here's what Jesus said is that in Acts chapter 1, you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you so that you can go be a witness to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And for this to take place, here's how complicated it is. If you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, uh, what Jesus himself says is you need to ask. (laughs) Just ask. That's what he says is how much more would the Father give to you the Holy Spirit of those that would ask of him is what he mentions in Luke. And so clearly Jesus wants us to have this power and yet there are many going around operating without a power source. Now, Fourthly, he mentions the laying on of hands, and this would be a commendation to go into service. You've got a calling on your life. I'm going to lay hands upon you. Now go put feet to your faith. Now go out there and do the works the Lord has put uh, on your heart to do. He then mentions resurrection of the dead. This speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. Please understand that uh, the resurrection is of vital importance for us to grasp. Because if Jesus simply died for our sins, what a wonderful thing that he took my sin upon himself and then he died. But, but if he doesn't rise, guess what? Um, we're still dead. <laughs> we're still dead. There's no resurrection, then there is no life. And Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So him uh, conquering hell and death, it means that now you and I no longer have to be afraid of death. We have new life in him. And the resurrection was the proof. It was the receipt that the payment was accepted. That here's the payment for all of our sin, but the proof that that payment was good, that it was accepted, is the resurrection. So it's vital to understanding. And then finally, he mentions eternal judgment, that there will be a final day of reckoning. This is something that is often not taught in churches uh, all throughout uh, Western America, and here's why. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to run anybody off. We want to be seeker sensitive. We want to make sure that people feel welcome here, and truly we want to do that. But how can you have a friend or, or a family member that you love and not tell them the truth? The truth is that there is going to be a day. There is going to be a reckoning. What Philippians says is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That every means every. It's either willingly or it is uh, by compulsion that every knee is going to bow someday. And for every person, they will be judged. And for those that have believed in Christ Jesus, uh, they will hear this. uh, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. Now enter into the joy of the Lord we just sang about. And for those who did not believe, they will hear, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. And so two very different uh, judgments, two very different eternities. But what the writer is saying here is it's imperative that we believe and understand in these basic principles. They're critical to our understanding. And it's tough to move on if we don't have a grasp, at least a little bit of a grasp on these things that we can't move though if we don't move on we can't grow there's no consumption of the meat and the desire is to actually teach and learn and understand what Paul says is the whole counsel of God that it takes a whole bible to make a whole christian that uh, sermonettes will make christianettes so if you don't want to be a christianette that we need to understand and grasp the whole counsel of God so with all that being said we will enter into one of the most controversial sections in all the New Testament. Verse 4 that says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift 
and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him uh, to an open shame. And so this is the third of five warnings and definitely the most drastic of all the warnings in the book of Hebrews. Now, the reason this is so controversial is that it flies in the face of the once saved, always saved argument. That if a person is saved, are they saved forever? So we'll dig into this. And because it's so controversial, then you have all kind of hypotheses about what the scripture actually means. I'm going to share a couple of them with you, and then I'm going to dig into uh, how I view it. Uh, first of all, the first argument and the most popular is that this text is written to those who did not truly believe. That this is written to those who, as we read in here, only tasted of the heavenly gift. They only tasted the good word of God. And so they just nibbled, just a little, just a little nibble, just a little nibble. And because of that, they never really fully consumed the God of the word of God. They never were complete partakers. And so they didn't believe in the first place. That's the reason they now are destined for hell. But the issue with that is if you turn uh, to the left into chapter 2, verse 9 of the same book of Hebrews, we read, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. The same word that's in chapter 6, taste, is here in chapter 2. And so the question is, did Jesus just take a little nibble, just a little bit of death? Or did he fully consume death so that you and I were not consumed? You see, if he only just tasted it, just took a little bite and didn't fully consume it, then you and I are in very much trouble. But the reality is he tasted death completely and wholly so that we would not have to. Now, the second hypothesis is that this scripture is just merely hypothetical. That the writer is writing to this group of people who are struggling with this decision. Do we go back to Judaism? Do we stay in Christianity? And so he gives them this hypothetical situation that if a person were to happen to turn away, then it would be impossible unless Christ were to come back and die again for them to re-enter into the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> now, I don't know where anybody gets this because nowhere does he say hypothetically speaking. And so the problem is when we start making things hypothetical and just by chance and just simple stories is you have to do that with the entire Bible. And so what I would challenge you to do and where I'm going to land on this is, first of all, it is important to always take the text in its context. What is the context of what we're reading right now? He's writing throughout Hebrews to his brethren. He calls them brethren over and over again, which communicates to me that these are believers in Christ, that these are people, at least as much as the writer could know, who with their whole heart at some point believed in Jesus. And now the issue at hand is they are considering taking the simplicity of the gospel and exchanging it for the complexity of their own works. They're going to change it in. They're going to say, that simple gospel isn't good enough. I need to go back to where it's on me to be able to obtain and achieve salvation. And the reality is, if we are going to be determined to, by our own works, achieve salvation, that is impossible. That is completely and utterly impossible. I can't do enough. I can't 
be good enough. I can't clean up all my past enough to be able to stand in front of a holy God. It's not doable for me. And so the other thing that I want to do is always the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so to turn to Mark chapter 10. And in this spot, it's the story of Jesus speaking to a rich young ruler. This young man comes to Jesus as the teacher, and his question is, how do I inherit eternal life? And so in this passage, Jesus says, look, here's the reality. The commandments go a little something like this. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the young man hears this, and he's like, check, check check. I'm feeling good about me. And he comments to Jesus, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Look at my good works, what all I've done. The Lord then says, okay, one thing you lack, Um, go your way, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and take up your cross and follow me. Uh Uh-oh. We're told in the next verse, the young men went away sad and sorrowful for he had great possessions. See, Jesus wasn't as concerned about his stuff as he was what he had made an idol in his life. He hit a comfort spot that this young man had. He thought he had checked all the boxes, but the Lord drilled right down to the heart of the matter in that it it is all about you and your works. Now, the disciples hearing this, they've got a question. All right, if As Jesus goes on to teach, it is tougher for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. For them, they looked at that teaching and they said, well, how then can anybody enter the kingdom? Because it was their belief that if you did well and you followed the law, then God would bless you. In other words, people that had more things were more blessed because God loved them more. They did more right things. So if those people that were thought to be the most holy in all the land couldn't enter into the kingdom, then who can enter in? And Jesus said in verse 27, with men, it is impossible. It is impossible for man to do this. You can't do it. The same thing that is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 6. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. You see, when we only focus on what we can do, my possibilities, they are limited. But with him, he has unlimited possibilities. And he is very much in the salvation business. It's what he does. He is all about miracles. He's all about turning things upside down. Situations that we think can't be saved. We can't see salvation in this. This is what he does. And so all things to him are possible. Now the question is, can salvation be lost? I would turn you to Romans chapter 8, verse 38. It's highlighter worthy if you don't already have it highlighted. Where Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can salvation be lost? Absolutely not. Can can we be pried away from the hand of God? Absolutely not. There is no created thing. There is no power. There is no principality that can take us away from him. Rest assured in that. There is one way, though, that we cannot obtain the kingdom of heaven. And that is if you decide. 
if you walk away. You see, the reality is God loves us so much that he is a good, good father. And as a good father, he is not going to force anything upon you. He is not going to make you go to heaven if you don't want to go to heaven. He's not going to take you by the ear and say, young man, you're going to heaven whether you like it or not. All of eternity, you said a prayer when you were in a kid's church as a young man, so you're going to heaven even though you live like hell. Like, why, why would he say that? Why would he do that? Does that seem like a father who, who loves us? And the reality is, and this is important for us to grasp, is that he is not going to be crucified again. Understand, Jesus gave it all. He gave everything. He died for our sins once and for all. But he is not about to come back again as a lamb to be crucified. The truth is the next time he comes back is as a lion. There is going to be a judgment. There is going to be a reckoning, and he is going to wrap this whole thing up. And so for some, there is an assurance there. And for others, that is uh, terrifying. He continues in verse 7. And he says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. <laughs> That's uplifting. So here we have the same earth, the same rain, the same seed, but very different results. What Jesus would share in Mark chapter 4, we don't have time to go through the whole parable of the sower there, but in chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, Jesus goes to great lengths to share with them the parable of the seed and the sower. And the reality is the seed in every single instance is the same. It's the word of God. The difference in what is produced is the condition of the heart. It's what is the ground cultivated like. Is it ready and willing to receive the word? And for those that are ready and willing, they have a heart willing to receive, guess what? It is wonderful comfort. And for those that are hard and refuse to receive, uh, it is tremendously concerning. And so one of the best things I heard all week is this. This isn't original, but I wanted to share it with you. And that is that the same uh, word uh, comforts the afflicted, but it will also afflict the comfortable. That there are those that sit through church every single week, and I was one of those for a really long time, the bulk of my life, and, and as I sat there, I was afflicted. I was concerned. I was worried because I was not willing to receive. The things I heard were incredibly troubling. And yet for those who are afflicted, for those that look upon their sin and go, God, how could I ever be reconnected? man, this word is life. This word is water for the soul. This is exactly what those who are afflicted need to hear to have comfort. The same word. In verse 9, but. I don't think I've been this thankful for a but in a really long time. Here we are, but. Thank you, Lord. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation Though we speak in this manner. 
What the writer communicates to this audience is, I am confident of better for you. I'm looking on your lives, and I know God wants better. I know he wants life. And what I find amazing about things that end up being controversial like this in Scripture is that Satan is always wanting to make this about how you can't be saved. Here's all the ways you can't be saved. Here's all the ways where you're going to fail and you can lose your salvation. But Jesus is always focused on how can you be saved. And it's so very simple. He is in the salvation business, and what he desires for us is better. He wants better for us. And so the encouragement here is to focus on his word, focus on prayer, focus on worship, and let all that other stuff just go away. Now in verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And so as they're working, no doubt they've got this question in mind, does God even see anything that's happening in our lives? Does he even see how hard we're working? Well, works are important, by the way. What James says, we studied this a few months back. He says in chapter 2 of James, verse 26, For the, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Right? So works are important, but we don't have a faith and works. We're called to have a faith that works. What I mean by that is, as we realize how much Christ loves us, how much he gave for us, with no return in sight, we're to love like that, with no expectation on the return. And as we begin to experience his love, we can then learn to love like that. I am so encouraged by that. Because as one who has loved incorrectly, loved only with an expectation, now to have the opportunity to love with no expectations. To love just simply because Jesus loved. It's a game changer. And now, because true love can be had, true love actually works. True love desires to go and do good things for those that we care about. It desires to go and just take care of and care for people, not looking for a reward. What Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, this is here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus is talking about people that want to show everybody how hard they work for the Lord, willing to pray in public, stand up, arms lifted. What, what he's saying is these people have a black heart. They want to be seen by men, recognized by men, and, and the reality is They've already gotten their reward. Exactly what they want, they're going to receive. They want to be seen and recognized. Well, how holy, how spiritual those people are, how religious. Well, congratulations. You've been recognized by the very people you wanted to be recognized by. And I believe as Jesus shared that, he never had a spiteful bone in his body. It wasn't out of spite. He shared that to communicate the truth. They are getting what they asked for. But for many especially with these Hebrew Christians. They were doing these things, and they were sure that God wasn't even seeing them. They felt unnoticed. They felt all alone. And what Paul would write to the Corinthians, who felt similarly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
This is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. God sees. He sees your work. He knows how hard you're going for him. It's not going to be in vain. There's going to be tremendous rewards on this side of heaven, but most assuredly on the other side. He cannot wait to bless our socks off. He continues in verse 11 with the encouragement saying, and we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. These folks were tired. They were discouraged. I don't know about you, but we can get in seasons of life where we feel like that. Tired, Discouraged. This holiday season is one of the worst for that, where we just feel ran down. Am I doing any good? Things don't seem to be changing on all these fronts in my life. And what the writer is saying is be encouraged. Be encouraged by the promises of God and by those around you. When you have people in your circle that are going hard for Jesus, be encouraged as they're going hard. Imitate them. They're trying to imitate you. Go hard after this thing together. He continues in verse 13 and says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. You see, for these folks, um, they knew that Christ had left with specific instructions, but he had also promised his return. And a week had gone by, and a month had gone by, and a year had gone by, and a decade had gone by, and they had not experienced the return of Jesus. And so they were getting weary. They were getting tired that surely by now he would have come back. Surely he sees us and he would have returned. And so they were eager on the return of the Lord, but they're crying out, how long, Lord? And so the temptation was to turn to things that they could see, like the temple. Here's the beautiful temple. We can see it. It's there in Jerusalem. Here's the incense burning and the priestly robes and all the pomp and all the circumstance. We can see these things. Let's worship this because we can see and taste and touch it. And what the writer is trying to communicate is uh, don't grow weary while you wait. Because when you look throughout Scripture, there is always a gap between a promise given and a promise realized. The the writer takes him all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, all the way back to Father Abraham. And what we experience in just a few pages is Abraham, at the ripe old age of 75, being told, you're going to be Abraham, father of many nations. The problem with that is, Abraham didn't have a child. He was missing a child at 75. Like, Lord, you better work quick. Things are not looking great. I'm 75. Sarah's 65. You're going to have to get to work, Lord. But what we see in just a few pages of him being given a promise and then seeing a promise realized, do you know that it took two and a half decades, 25 years, Abraham waited for that promise to be fulfilled? He didn't wait perfectly, but he waited. 25 years of him wondering if he heard the Lord right. 25 years of Sarah lying awake at night crying because she wasn't able to give Abraham the one thing he wanted, and that was a son. 
She felt like a failure. He felt like a failure. All these pressures being pressed down into them and on them. And yet, here's the beautiful part about Scripture. The gap between God's promises and his performance is always where he does his best work. (laughs) Always where his best work takes place. For this man, Abraham, the father of the faith, what God was raising up in him was faith. When you look at his story, what he lacked time and time again was faith. God was growing up faith in Abraham, the ability to trust in the promise that he gave him 25 years earlier. And so this is the reminder that the writer gives these people who are reading it. Just like Abraham received a promise and time passed before it was fulfilled, so it will be with you. For verse 16, men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Verse 17, thus God determining to show abundantly to their heirs the promise of the immutable immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. And so in this day and age, they would uh, promise. They would swear on things if they wanted to communicate that they really meant what they were saying. They would, no different than what we are, right? I swear to you, it's true. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mama's grave. I swear on my children's lives. I swear to be true. By the way, every time somebody tells me I swear, I automatically assume they're lying automatically, I'm like, not telling me the truth, dude. And if they swear and then they wink at the same time, I'm like, oh, this thing's going down. Like, this is not going to happen. But this is what's being communicated in that day. This is why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, he would communicate to them, uh, verse 37, he says to them, But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. That we should communicate to people and what we tell them we should do. Either a yes or a no. We shouldn't have to say, I swear, I promise, across my heart, hope to die. All that is from the enemy. We should be people of integrity. Now we arrive here and what we find is uh, God swore. (laughs) Why did God swear? Well, he sweared because the people were slow to believe. They were struggling with belief. And so what God says is, I'm going to take an oath. I'm going to give you a promise, and I'm going to swear by it. In verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, and we might have strong consolation who have fled to refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. By these two immutable, or the word could be unchangeable. That's my favorite word for immutable things. This is what God has given us as a promise. And those two things are his word, and I love this about the Lord. He cannot lie. Do you understand there's, there's something God can't do? He cannot lie. He cannot go back on his word. His word is going to be fulfilled. And the second is his oath. And because his oath was so important uh, to himself, he swore by the only thing that was actually eternal himself. God said, I swear by me that I'm going to make this happen. And so because of these two immutable, unchangeable things, we can now have Hope. We can have hope as the pressure's mounting, as it feels like it's not worth it to continue down this way, as we want to just dry up, 
curl up in the fetal position and quit. What we're encouraged by is we can have hope because his word won't fail. His oath will not fail. And so verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. And so these people were tempted. They were tempted to turn back to materialism or religion. They were tempted to go back to all the traditions of their past because the pressure had become too much. The persecution was too much. Why not just go with the flow? Just let things happen, right? I'm just going to let things take place all around me. There's no need to take a stand. Just let the tide carry me. But what you all know about the ocean is, if you're just willing to not throw an anchor in and let the tide carry you, it's not long before you are out stranded all by yourself, which is exactly what the enemy wants. He wants you to drift along, just going with the flow, and the next thing you know, you're alone and you're separated. And that's how people end up feeling in these spots. And, the, and then to make matters worse, when there's no anchor, what happens when a storm comes? By the way, it's not an if with a storm, it's a when. The storms are going to happen. What then takes place is that we're going to be blown even farther out to sea. And see, here's the thing about storms. Um, they don't know a political party. Uh, they don't know a socioeconomic uh, status. Uh, they don't know a skin color. Storms will come. And so the question is, uh, where is your anchor? If Christ is your anchor, here's what you can rely on. His word is true. And his word does not change. And so as we're being tossed all around, there's no more drifting. There's no more separation. There's no more need to feel all alone because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Beautiful promise here in Scripture. Finally, verse 20, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we see Jesus Christ now listed as our forerunner. And for me, uh, what the picture I got in my mind, maybe this is childish, but I was thinking about Friday night football, right? Friday night lights, we're at the end of football season here, and what you've got is the cheerleaders out there at the end of the tunnel, and they've got that paper, right? Something usually clever written on it like win or go. Or actually the favorite one I read this week was um, call your girlfriend and tell her you're available next Friday night, right? So I didn't put that up there because I didn't want to be distracting, but then I said it, so there you go. But you, they, it would have some kind of a banner for the team to run through. And what happens is there's always one person that leads the charge, that tears through the banner, right? But here's the thing. What happens if they get caught up in the, in the, banner, in the banner? What happens if they stumble and they fall? Then it's a big old mess of a dog pile behind them. Everybody just kind of piles on. It's a disaster. It's embarrassing. But what we have is Jesus Christ, our forerunner, charging through the veil, one who will not stumble, who will not falter, who will not fail. And what he has done is cleared the way for us to enter into the Holy of Holies. We can now come boldly to the throne of grace because he has blown through the veil. 
He has given us access that we didn't have access before. The thing that separated us, that kept us apart, that drifted us off the sea, it was our own sin, you see. It stopped us from having access. We couldn't stand before a holy God with our sin, but we can by the blood of Christ. And so we can now enter into the Holy of Holies. Now, for these Hebrews, immediately red flags would have gone off. Wait a minute. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, so he couldn't have entered into the Holy of Holies. That was reserved for the Levites in particular, a son of Aaron, and only the one who was called on to be the high priest. And what the writer says is this is, this is the elementary thing you've missed out on. Psalm 110 tells us he is going to be a high priest from the order of Melchizedek. He wanted to share with them about what this means, but he didn't in the previous chapter because they weren't ready. Don't worry, next week, chapter 7, we'll get into what that looks like. But the importance of today is uh, he is your forerunner, if you would allow him to be. That's really the question. Who is your forerunner? Who is the one that you want to have charging through the tunnel in front of you? Because if you're anything like me, far too often, I want that to be me. I want to go charging through the tunnel. I want to be the first man out. But the problem is, I'm unreliable. I'm uh, subject to stumbling. I'm liable to trip over my own feet or my own sin or my own humanity. And, and so I need a forerunner to go out in front of me. I want to encourage you to choose Jesus as the forerunner on this season. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you. Beautiful promises here in Hebrews chapter 6. Definitely some stark reminders and some things that are difficult for us to wrap our heads around. But I am so thankful that we cannot be lost in you. That you hold us firmly in your hand. And no power or principality can tear us away. Lord, help us to continue to endure. The word that shows up over and over again in our New Testament is endure. Lord, help us as things get difficult, as we have persecution, as we feel the weight of our own sin and failure to realize you're our forerunner. You've already won. You've already charged through the veil, and so now we can come boldly to the throne of grace because the blood of Jesus is atoned for our sins. Lord, help us to be able to grasp that today. Father, thank you so much for the way you love us, for the way you don't quit on us, even though we are apt to quit. We are apt to want to turn back. Lord, thank you for continuing. Thank you for being steadfast. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.